Well, uh, good morning. It is um, special for me to be here. I was, I was looking. I think the last time that I was here was before COVID. And um, always loved being here. And so thank you for uh, allowing uh, me to bring the word to you this morning. Um, I do want to acknowledge something that Rob prayed for, uh, that we're all human. And so when events happen like yesterday in Buffalo that so mar the image of God, um, it is, uh, I think, a time for us to, to just pause and to ask the Lord to, uh, to bring peace and understanding and healing, especially to the victims of uh, the families. And so um, let, me, uh, let me pray as we start and look at this message. Heavenly Father, we stand here this morning about to dig into your scriptures that point us so clearly to you, and that is a joy and a privilege. One of the things that your scriptures teach is that you hate those who mar the image of God. That, that is us. That is your creation, your humanity. And so, um, pray that justice would prevail very clearly in New York. And we pray for the families that have been so impacted by what happened. Um, come, Lord Jesus, a lot of us pray when these types of things happen. Uh, and we pray that even this morning. And in your son's name we pray, amen. We are looking at the very end of the book of Exodus this morning. And the book of Exodus is a story of a people that are walking from oppression into freedom. And one of the things that we see is that God is with them all along the way. Now, in case it has been a while since you have been in the book of Exodus, or maybe you have never spent time in the book of Exodus, last night I wrote a 90-second review of everything that happens up to this point, because I know that jumping here right at the, the very closing of the book can be hard sometimes. And so here we go. The sons of Jacob and uh, their family, right, otherwise known as Israel, moved to Egypt where their brother Joseph had risen in provenance. He's the second in command in Egypt, and he takes care of his family. But Joseph dies, and up comes a pharaoh that does not remember how good Joseph had been to the Egyptians. He feels threatened, and so he, uh, threatened and so he enslaves Israel. And then later, they keep growing. God keeps blessing them. And so he tries to take out the firstborn males of all of the Israelites. But there is at least one who is saved, Moses, who ends up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses grows up. He kills an Egyptian. And so he feels like he has to run away. And while he is out and about, he meets a priest and marries his daughter. Probably has a family. Things continue to be bad back in Egypt for the Israelites. And so they cry out to God, God, save us. We cannot handle this oppression any longer. And so God comes to Moses in the form of this burning bush and commands him to go back to Egypt and to rescue his people, to rescue the Israelites. And so he goes back to Egypt with his brother Aaron. And they ask for Israel to be free. And at first it doesn't go well, and so there's this series of plagues that God brings about on the Egyptians. 
And the last one is sort of the nail in the coffin, as it were. And so they are allowed to leave after this epic meal that they have called the Passover. Egypt, though, changes their mind. They try to come after the Israelites. But God parts a sea so that they are able to cross through it. And they are saved, but they end up in a wilderness for 40 years trying to get to this place called the Promised Land. And during that time, lots of things happen, like the giving of the Ten Commandments. And other messy things as well. They mess up a lot. There's an occurrence of them worshiping a golden calf, which Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. And then there's this constant complaining, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Slavery was better in Egypt than what we are experiencing out here in the wilderness. But all along the way, God reminds them of his presence, of his dwelling with them. And he wants to make that in a way more manifest. And so he gives instruction for a tent or a tabernacle to be built where his presence is made very clear to the Israelites. And just like if you and I were to go camping somewhere up in North Georgia, we would take a tent and we would live in it. And then we would take that down. Maybe we hike five miles and we live in another tent. So when you read about the tent of meeting in the Old Testament, that is what was happening. It would be put up, and then it would be taken down. It is where God would dwell with his people, and when they moved, the tent would go with them. Chapters 32 through 34 are basically the instructions of what this tent is going to look like, which later would be replaced by the temple by Solomon. And then 35 to our passage this morning is the actual building of it. And so we are going to focus on the, the 34 through 38, but I, just real quickly, I want to read a couple verses before that. Um, one through three. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And then let me read verses 18 through 19. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, put in the poles, raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, 34 through 38, our passage this morning. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Thus God's Word. So here, at the very end, I want us to see through this passage that God's desire is to be with his people, and that secondly, God's desire is for them to behold his glory. So first, God's desire to dwell with his people. You may have picked up on it, but there is one word that is in every verse that we read here at the end, one time. Look again, right? It is the word cloud. Verse 34, 
The cloud covers the tent, verse 35. The cloud settles on the tent. Verse 36, the cloud moves and then the people move. Verse 37, the cloud stays and the people stay. Verse 38, the cloud is with the Israelites throughout all of their journeys. So what is going on here? Well, it's a constant reminder that the Lord is with them, that the Lord is for them, and that wherever they go, He will be present. The covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, will be with them. No matter where they go throughout all of their journeys, it is a symbol of that presence. I don't want to jump ahead, but real quick, it's why we come to the table. The table is a symbol. It's a sign that God is present with us. That He is for us. That He is already rescued. And the crazy thing about all of this, that He is present, is that it is true regardless of the quality of their faith. So they worshiped a golden calf, yet God is with them and present with them. Yes, they constantly complain and disobey things that Moses passes on along, and yet God is still with them by day and by night. A constant reminder of His goodness to them. He is faithful to guide and to protect. And the cloud reminds them of that truth. In this tent that is being built is a reminder of that truth. And I think that this reality, even for us today as God's people, just as Israel, was is that it is apropos. That we need this reminder that God is present with us. I still think we're, at least a lot of us are still kind of in this weird journey right now. Maybe the restrictions and difficulties of COVID are not as present with us as they were a year and a half ago, but there are so many other things that just feel like we are walking in strange territory. Even though it feels a little bit more normal now when I read about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, I'm like, is this really going on? Or again, things that happened yesterday in Buffalo, New York, I'm like, certainly not another one. We live in a disorienting world, and we need the reminder that God is present with us. That He is for us. Just as God dwelt in His tabernacle, so He dwells in us through Jesus. He dwells with us as a body, as a church, as brothers and sisters. Paul says, therefore, in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Or in some ways, you could even extract that you are God's tent of meeting, that you are His tabernacle, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Are we living, those of us who belong to Jesus, are we living in light of that reality that God dwells in you, that God dwells in this church because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that we just celebrated at Easter. Jesus is interceding for you before his Father. What are you doing with that glorious, magnificent truth that he is for you, that he is with you? 
that he is for this church, that he is with this church. Just as the cloud reminded Israel that God was there to guide and to protect them, so the gospel reminds us of that truth. So the table reminds us of that truth. So baptism, being rescued through, in a lot of ways, through water, like the Israelites were rescued through water in the Red Sea. We are reminded, but the fact is that we struggle, I think, with the beautiful truth here, the glory of it. Our sin, our pride, and our anger can cause us to push back over and over and over again to say, we don't need the guidance. We don't need the protection. And yeah, the presence is kind of cool, but does it really affect my life right now, here in the present? This is why we need to preach this stuff to ourselves all of the time. When I was in middle school, 8th grade, I went to a private school up in Kennesaw, Georgia, and I was on the 8th grade basketball team, uh, sort of JV. It was like 8th, ninth, and 10th grade, I believe. And my brother, who was much larger than me, um, he was on the varsity team. And I remember there was, there was this other kid on the varsity team, and he was pretty big too, but not as big as my brother. For some reason, he picked on me. I, was, I think I was the only eighth grader on the team, and he would just constantly mess around with me, bump into me, make fun of me. And one time, we were in this hall that was in between the gym and the locker rooms, and somehow it ended up just me and, the, and this, this guy. And he was messing around with me, pushing me a little bit. And my brother walked in and saw what was going on. And I'll never forget, he grabbed this guy. Again, my brother was bigger than him. He grabs this guy, and he kind of slams him into the wall, and he says, leave my brother alone, or you're going to regret it. And this guy just sort of glared a little bit, and he walked away, and he never bothered me again. And do you want to know what I said to my brother? I said to my brother, I looked him in the eyes, and I said, why did you do that? I could have taken him. And then I said, I don't need you. I don't need you. And we joke about it now, but I was so angry and I was so prideful that he made me look like I needed help against, at the time, a perceived enemy. When you're 14 years old, that is the definition of an enemy. Friends, though, that is, that's us with God. A lot of times. It was the Israelites with God who was constantly protecting. He was constantly saving. He was constantly leading. And they and us often say, I don't need it. I think it's one of the greatest lies that is passed along by Satan, the accuser, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, is you don't need him. And yet we do. Don't we? We need Jesus, our brother, to rescue us from sin and from our enemies. And I want to beg you as we head into the summer not to spurn God's presence in your life, not to spurn the reminder of His presence in your life, and not to pretend like you don't really need Him. I told my students all the time when I was at Emory University that perfect people do not need Jesus. They're already perfect. 
It is those who are imperfect, those who are weary and heavy laden that Jesus invites to come and to get rest. God's desire is to dwell with you in Jesus so that you may behold his glory. And so, secondly, God's desire here is to display his glory, both in verses 34 and 35. We read that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see, the greatest thing about God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle was that they would behold his glory. The cloud was glory. The fire was glory. The tent was glory. Every piece and component of it was glory. Recently, I had a friend tell me that one of the things that bothered him the most about the idea of the God of Christianity, the thing that bothered him the most about Christianity in general was just this idea that the supernatural being would demand to be praised. If he was that good, why wouldn't praise just happen? Why does he have to command it? Why does he have to demand it? Why does God need the attention? Why is beholding his glory such a big deal in the Bible? And I actually think it's a good question that we should be honest with. Why does he command it? Why does he demand it? I mean, we bristle when people around us do the exact same thing. Or they point out to us how amazing they actually are. Whether it's a celebrity or a politician or a coworker or a boss, when they start to get into that sort of bragging or look at me, we don't like it. But here is the answer that belonging and participating in God's glory is the ultimate experience of life. It is what we are made for. It's what Jesus puts on full display in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. You see, when men and women demand your praise, demand to be glorified, it actually takes life away from you. I'm smarter, I'm prettier, I'm richer, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Those things take life away from us. When God desires glory, it is to give life. It is to give meaning and purpose and significance. And I think that this concept is one of the greatest contributions that a famous author that maybe some of you know wrote Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. I think it's the greatest, one of the greatest contributions he brought. Before C.S. Lewis was a Christian, this issue bothered him more than anything else. The demanding and commanding of praise. And it was almost to the degree that it just kept him away from Christianity. Why would I want to worship a megalomaniac? But the Lord got a hold of him and all of that changed. And it became one of the most important aspects actually of his faith. And I want to read you something that he wrote in a book that was on the Psalms that he wrote. Reflection. Reflections on the Psalms. I had a lot longer quote, but I I boiled it down to this. I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And listen to what he says here. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The only reason we are commanded 
to praise God is because life remains incomplete without it. It remains incomplete without it. How do you behold God's glory? How do you behold God's glory? Four things, quickly. There's a lot more. These are just some to chew on as we head into the summer. Number one, and I know this is probably obvious, but we behold God's glory in His Scripture. The verse that came to mind here, John 1.14, The Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. The Word. And we have seen His glory. So, in other words, being with the Word is being with the glory of Jesus. And being with Jesus is being with the Word. It is a profound mystery. Deeply profound mystery. But the fact is, when we are embedded in God's Word with each other on a Sunday morning, in Bible studies, in mornings or evenings, whenever you are embedded in it, when you're reminding one, in, one another with verses that have inspired you, you are beholding the glory of God. And so be often in it. I say that as a challenge to myself with much conviction. Secondly, we behold the glory of God in each other, in others. There's this psalm, Psalm 8. It's about God's majesty. The first verse, how, you know, how majestic is the Lord. The, the, the last verse is about the majesty of God. And right smack dab in the middle is something about humanity. About men and women. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The person that you are sitting nearby right now beholds the glory of God. The children in your house behold the glory of God. Or parents, or siblings, or co-workers. They behold the glory of God. And so one of the challenges here is to sometimes stop and to look into the mystery of someone's eyes and to say to yourself, they are glorious. They reflect the glory of God. Thirdly, I think you behold the glory of God by this. By what we are doing right now. And by the things that we do throughout the week together as the body. And by the way, by the things that you do with other brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches across the city. Paul, listen to what he says in Ephesians 3. This is often a benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, listen to what he says, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We behold the glory of God when we are together doing the things of God. And then lastly, we behold the glory of God in His creation. There's so much scripture here that we could walk through. Genesis 1, about God creating the world. Romans 1, that His glory is revealed in creation. 
Psalm 104, walking through that reality. But I want to end, actually, with a quote from an often unknown hippie named John Calvin, who says this. He's writing this, I guess that would have been 16th century. Correctly then is this world called the mirror of divinity. Not that there is sufficient clearness for man to gain a full knowledge of God, but by looking at the world, the faithful whom he has given eyes see sparks of his glory, as it were, glittering in every created thing. The world was no doubt made that it might be the theater of divine glory. What is one of the applications here? Maybe get into nature. Or to stop and pause even in the city. There's so much beauty in nature even here. The peace and the awe and the wonder that you sometimes feel. That is experiencing the sweetness of the glory of Jesus Christ. And maybe that sounds new agey or hippie to you, but it is not. The author of Hebrews says that in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the whole world. Are we participating in the glory of God through his creation, which so beautifully is called by John Calvin the theater of divine glory? I love that. Behold the glory of God, whom you only have access to through Jesus Christ, who desires to dwell and be with you. Jesus is the fulfillment of this tent of meeting. He is the fulfillment of the temple. And he dwells in us through faith. If you have put your faith in him. Let me pray. Father, help us to wrap our minds around the the story here, the, the beauty that you so wanted your people to know that you were present with them, that this tent, this tabernacle was built, and then your cloud was there by day and fire by night. And then later you sent your son to be the ultimate reminder that you want to be with us and rescue and save and fill our cups up. Those of us who have been struggling and wondering if you are actually there when things are hard, would you remind us this morning of that reality that we might remind others? And would you remind this church that you are present with it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.